Abolition and the day. All Lives Matter, 1800s edition. Just because I own slaves doesn't mean I'm racist. I don't even see color. You're racist for being slaves. My closest friends are house Negroes. Look, I didn't ask to have all this cotton. It's not my fault that the cotton is profitable. Don't blame me for something my grandfather's grandfather planted. And if cotton is so bad, why are you wearing it? Don't act innocent. This is the fabric of all our lives. You know what really just uh, shines my shoes? You can give birth to a light-skinned child and everything is fine. But I put on a little bit of blackface. Oh no, that's racist. How? Blackface comes off. Your white face? is forever. This is not the dream that Abraham Lincoln gave speeches for. Racism ended with the three-fifths compromise. Everyone is equal. We have a black overseer. Slavery is a choice. If you didn't want to get locked up, you should have kept running after we captured your wife. I mean, like, come on. Make good decisions or face the consequences. Blacks are 99% more likely to try and escape north. That's not racist. That's just a fact. When will you people realize underground railroads only create racial divide? And why? We're all red on the inside. Look at your brother's body. Rope doesn't make his neck any different than mine. My accountant hung himself, so we're all struggling with something. Don't judge a book that you're not allowed to read. My house is like two-story tops. The real masters live in mansions. I'm a slave like you. Only through love and working together can we get our emancipation. Free the people? How about we the people? Black Lives Matter? How about all lives matter? Abolition. Abolition. Uh, but in fact, you can extract these things and then tell yourself a story or tell others a story about why you're doing all these things so you can still maintain your sense of self as a good person if you need to. So let's connect this to the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment states, quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall, be, excuse me, shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. For context, we need to step back and understand what was at stake for the American South with slavery and why they were willing to wage the bloodiest war in United States history to protect this institution. So I'm going to share a couple of quotes from uh, Emory Professor Carol Anderson's book, White Rage. She first quotes Mississippi's Articles of Secession. And so this is uh, Mississippi's justification for separating the United States of a, from, the, from the United States of America. It reads as follows, quote, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth, end quote. Anderson herself then adds, quote, In fact, two-thirds of the wealthiest Americans at the time lived in the slave-holding South. 81% of South Carolina's wealth was directly tied to owning human beings. In 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, 80% of the nation's GDP was tied to slavery. In a nutshell, what does this tell us? The American economic order rested on total exploitation of black labor. Today, today, what the United States has is essentially a $200 billion jobs program that we call the criminal justice system. It gives mostly white jobs supervising and controlling mostly black and brown people. 
It has failed. It has not kept us safe. And if anything, it has created more criminals than it purports to catch. But perhaps that's the point. Otherwise, we'd have to come up with a really huge jobs program, um, which I can talk about during Q&A. The United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other country in the world. But the fuller story is not just the 2.3 million Americans who are locked up, right, or the staggering 7.1 million Americans who are currently under correctional supervision. It's the tens of millions with felony convictions who cycle through the criminal justice system and then face legal discrimination in every aspect of their lives, which we often refer to as sort of collateral damage or collateral consequences. Now, after relegating prisoners to the margins long after they've served their sentences, these returning citizens are legally barred from jobs, housing, voting, educational pursuits, financial aid, uh, any avenue to, to reenter mainstream society. So in addition to the jobs that are created, to cage, warehouse, and monitor millions of black, brown, native, and poor white folks, huge swaths of the job market are cleared from competition. Competition for whites who would otherwise be forced to compete for those jobs. In closing, I just want to close the loop on this economic order piece. Um, the economic order stru- structures the sociopolitical order. And what do I mean by that? The the political order, the political institutions, the political rules, the public policies are put in place to serve the most powerful economic interests. This is what allows for a loophole to be inserted in the 13th Amendment in the first place. Thank you. Thank you. Abolition. You were just listening to Anthony McPherson, All Lives Matter, 1800s edition, courtesy of Button Poetry, and also a clip from Dr. Ajani Clemens breaking down modern slavery and the 13th Amendment in D.C. at the National Archives Museum. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by private for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can find us at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas. I'm here with my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. What's up, Yusuf? Hey, uh, Max, peace and blessings be upon you and upon all of our listeners. Word. You know, that uh, was very heavy there, very heavy, and I'm ready for us to get into, you know, our weekly program because we got a lot to cover, man, as always. as of today, we warmly welcome our third co-host, Harmony YZ. Peace. What's happening, Harmony? I'm good. How are you, Max? How are you, sir? Hey, Hannah. Yeah, I, I told you she was going to come in during Poetry Month, right? Make this big entrance during Poetry Month. Uh, hey, Harmony YZ has to be a spoken word artist. Word. So welcome, welcome, I'm- welcome. Um Today, so back, so we, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I just want to read the Constitution, the 13th Amendment, for those who are unfamiliar with it. The doctor just read it in that clip, didn't she? Yes, she did. Yeah. She absolutely yeah, she did. did. <laughs> so you're right. We don't even have to cover that again. Uh, today, on the heels of our Alabama coverage, we discussed the massive corruption within the Mississippi prison system. The racial bias, the human rights violations, the connections to global prison and slavers, and the multiple states who have been implicated in a huge racketeering scheme dubbed by the FBI as Operation Mississippi Hustle. 
Now, this is an epic story with a global implications, and we'll try to do our best to lend insight from a slavery abolitionist perspective. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Jeanette Smith, who is on our team here at Abolition Today, and she helps get a lot of the information out for us while we're discussing it. She recently reached out to Jerry Mitchells, which is, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, investigative journalist. He was the man who exposed the corruption that was going down in Mississippi. And uh, from what I understand, Jerry Mitchell is probably tuning in right now, listening to the program. I'm hoping he learned something from what we've discovered here today. Uh, Yusuf, start with you. Yes, I absolutely, absolutely hope he's tuned in. So, man, we have so much to cover. Where you want to start on this, Max? Well, let's go with our updates and let's give everybody a chance to say hello. You know, uh, briefly, I, I got a chance from you, but you know, uh, you can give us an update how the week's been, things that you might want to mention, and I want to give that same opportunity to Harmony. Yeah, uh, you know, the week has been the week. I mean, we're, we're making the best of it as much as we can. One thing has given me a lot more time to do research and also rest up my body. You know, there are all kinds of news coming from all over the country regarding, you know, the inmate populations throughout the country and the lack of testing and resources for them within the facilities. But at the same time, we're also getting great news all across the country of many releases of people who shouldn't be there in the first place because, you know, low-level crimes with outrageous bails that they've just been held hostage for the week. So that is some good news for that, Max. Word. Uh, Harmony, like I said, welcome again uh, here as a co-host of Abolition Today. I've been looking forward to your entrance. Uh, any commentary you want to add? Um, yes. So, um, first, I'm happy to be here. I actually work in corrections uh, in the treatment side, and within our facilities, we have released um, quite a few men from our personal smart facility, and also the governor of Ohio just uh, made a he passed like a law stating that um, basically they're going to release all women, like most of the women from the prisons, especially if they're pregnant or have children, and from the men's side, if they're like nonviolent. Um, low-level crimes, they're going to be releasing them um, back into society as well. Um, so that's good news um, as far as everything, like with the quarantine. Um, me, personally, I'm not feeling really – well, I'm feeling affected by it, but I just take it day by day. I try not to be overwhelmed by it. Um, and that's what I advise everybody to do because we never know what's going to happen. But um, there's some good that's coming out of it because it's allowed me to be more productive as well, get more writing in. Definitely a lot of content for writers these days. Uh, I noticed that there's two extremes going on throughout the prison systems in regard to the COVID-19 virus. And one is, as you said, uh, across not just America, but across the globe, other uh, they're releasing prisoners, particularly the aged or those who are low-level offenders and are no threat to society or possibly are simply in there because they can't afford bail. So they're releasing those people in some places while in other places, they're exploiting them. Uh, where, And when I say that, I mean like in Ohio, the link you sent me, where they're using prisoners now to start creating masks and gloves and protective gear. In New York, they're using prisoners to make the hand sanitizer, which they're distributing throughout the state and probably farther. 
so there's these two extremes happening, one where you care and one where you only care about what they can give you. Absolutely. I agree. There's a lot of concern yeah. as well. Like, you know, some of these prisons where people have no choice but to be in close proximity to each other. And uh, they they feel like they're in death traps out there now with the COVID virus. Yeah, that's the most dangerous part because as, you know, part of our reporting today just dealing with Mississippi is the overcrowdedness. And, you know, we look at New York, one of the one of the main reasons New York has been such an epicenter is because of the overcrowdedness of the city itself, you know, people have been showing uh, the subway cars with the cars being packed and everyone on there with the mask on and gloves on, but just how close everyone is packed in together. So when you take that to out of general society and you put it into the prisons and the county jails where it's even tighter confinements, and then you factor in lack of adequate medical care, lack of adequate protections, then, of course, it's going to be, you know, much worse than that. Anna? Um, I also agree as far as, like, the overcrowding. Um, that's why they've been releasing people. But also, yes, we have the issue of them still using uh, prison labor to make protective gear. Um, when there should be separate funding to have protective gear um, shipped to us um, in Ohio. Um, so there's good and bad to it. Um, on the reentry side, which is the side I work in, um, we have been, you know, following the CDC guidelines as much as possible, um, which is why, you know, we did have uh, quite a few people be released from the facilities. Um, and we have signs up just reminding them, and even with, within staff, we follow CDC guidelines of social distancing, and now we're allowed to uh, wear masks since it's recommended. Uh, so our CEO has been really good about keeping us up to date and making sure that we are staying safe and our clients are staying safe, safe as well. I just wish it would be um, reached on a higher level all across the board um, when it comes to the prison system. Because it, we did have a case in uh, Franklin County Jail, um, a case of the coronavirus. Um, so, of course, that's going to be spread. So it's just, um, I don't know, I just feel like that all across the board things could be even, but it's not going to be because exploitation, you know, profit is better, profit is uh Profit over people seems to be a thing nationwide, even with this epidemic going on. So, I, I recently uh, had a friend send me a live video where here in South Carolina at the hospital in Columbia, Prisma Hospital, uh, one of his employer employees, who was a homeless man, he employed the homeless, so he comes in and sweeps up his salon and things like that. One of his employees had been robbed and shot and had a couple of broken bones. So he went to the hospital. They took the ambulance, took him to the hospital, but the hospital wouldn't see him. So they put him out with his gunshot wound and broken bone. Literally put him out of the hospital. So he called a friend. Roy came in and went back and tried to get him in, and they wouldn't allow this man who was critically injured into the hospital because of a fear of coronavirus. 
uh, and we shared a few of the live videos. You can find our Abolition Today on Facebook. Please follow us there for all the information and updates that we're talking about. So that was pretty pretty morbid right there. And it dawned on me that, you know, New York and California are preparing for circumstances like this. Even the military has brought in uh, medical ships in order to take uh, some of the extra work that is overwhelming the hospitals. But here in South Carolina, we haven't heard anything about that. In the meantime, they're literally pushing people out onto the street. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about was in New York, they're offering Rikers Island inmates $6 an hour, which is the equivalent of a, a fortune for a prison inmate to work. But they're offering them $6 an hour to dig graves out on Hart Island, uh, possibly for the COVID virus uh, victims, which is pretty damn morbid, man. Oof. And for $6 yeah. an hour, an inmate like his island would certainly do it, too. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's funny because, you know, I, I spent time on, on Hart Island. A lot of times when you do little small bids or whatever, sometimes they send you over there. And, you know, that's where most unclaimed bodies go. That's the whole island. And, you know, you spend a couple of hours digging. It's not really digging. They have a forklift that does the digging. You're basically unloading the bodies off of the, you know, the pine mm. the pine boxes off of trucks. But the days that you do work, it's a lot of work. But most of the times you just, you just spend, you know, there sitting around just, you know, shooting the breeze with everybody because everybody's within a few days of going home. So that's all they're really thinking about. But for them saying that they're going to be paying $6 an hour, mind you, when I was there, and I'm talking, you know, the 80s, you know, there was no pay for it. You didn't get paid anything other than you ate, really. You ate much better than you would eat on Rikers Island. But uh, for them to be laying out $6 an hour, uh, there's there's a serious case of curiosity behind that brewing inside of me, so I'm going to have to research that, Max, just to see what's going on. Well, in about two minutes, I want to get into our first clip for the evening. But before that, I want to give another shout-out to Anthony McPherson, the spoken word artist who you just heard in our intro, All Lives Matter, 1800s edition, uh, from Button Poetry, and also to Dr. Ajanai Clemens, who really broke it down about the 13th Amendment. As you said, that was deep, right? And so it was a hell of right. a good way to come in during Poetry Month here on Abolition Today. Um, so that's how we're, we're going to do that for you all the time. We're going to provide you news, insight, opinion, uh, music, and poetry, uh, all of this stuff. that Because you know, it's not just about what you know, it's also about how you feel, you know? So we want right. to... What did, what did Maya say? And she actually quoted it from somebody else, Maya Angelou, where she said that people may not remember what you said, but they will remember how they how you, how you made them feel. Absolutely. <laughs> how you made them feel. Word. So um, let me get on to my control page here. Uh, this first clip is going to come in from Rachel Maddow. And it was the, some of the original reporting regarding the Mississippi corruption scandal. So she told through MSNBC on her program, what it was that Jerry Mitchell had uncovered. And we cut it down to just a few minutes, so let's go ahead into that. This is a hell of a story. Jerry Mitchell spent the last year taking a really deep dive into a very unforgiving subject, Mississippi prisons. And Mississippi prisons, no surprise, are terrible places. 
Jerry Mitchell spent the past year plus investigating what goes on behind prison walls in that state, investigating the beatings and stabbings and gangster guards and families being made to pay protection money to keep their loved ones safe in prison and drugs and smuggling and all of it, all this very dark stuff. But one thing Jerry Mitchell noticed as he went about his work was not just that the situation inside the prison system was bad, it was also sort of weird. There seemed to be something strange about what was going on, and it seemed to have to do with the guy at the very top of the system. The guy who'd been at the top of that system longer than anyone in state history. Something was just off. Here's an example of what was off. Back in 2012, a federal judge ruled in a lawsuit that one specific Mississippi prison was, quote, a cesspool of unconstitutional and inhuman acts and conditions. 2012. The very next year, that same prison got a perfect score, a perfect 100% rating from the American Corrections Association. Well, you know what? Turns out the head of the American Corrections Association, which gave this cesspool of a Mississippi prison a perfect 100% score, the head of the American Corrections Association was also the head of the Mississippi prison system. Commissioner Christopher Epps said at the time, quote, achieving 100% of standards is very difficult. I am extremely proud. So Jerry Mitchell reported on stuff like that for the Clarion Ledger. And the commissioner pushed back against Jerry Mitchell and against this paper for printing those stories. He said Mississippi prisons had gotten perfect scores before he became president of this trade group handing out the perfect scores. We're always perfect. Right? But still, but that was the kind of thing that was weird, right? The commissioner getting an award from himself for this very, very troubled prison. And Jerry Mitchell kept digging. And I'm... I'm not sure even he had an inkling of how huge this story was about to get. First, it's Vicks, the state's prison boss, facing bribery and money laundering charges. 16WABD's Tammy Aswick is live at the federal courthouse with this corrections corruption case. Tammy. Yeah, that's right, ladies. This was a huge investigation. Everyone from the FBI, the IRS, the state auditor's office, that's just to name a few. Now, all are accusing the former head of the state prison system and a former lawmaker of a huge bribery conspiracy. MDOC Commissioner Christopher Epps quiet on bribery and conspiracy charges. Uh, I think my lawyer will make a statement. At this point, we just got the indictment. Uh, it's, a, it's an extensive document. We really have no comment, and the commissioner is not going to make any comment. Federal prosecutors just unsealed an indictment months in the making against Commissioner Christopher Epps in the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Dozens of federal felony charges. Federal prosecutors say he's been collecting bribes and kickbacks from a local businessman uh, who has ties to companies that were given contracts to run parts of the prison system. The scale of this thing is actually epic. All told, the companies that are allegedly involved in this scheme have taken in close to a billion, billion with a B dollars, a billion dollars in Mississippi. That comes out to almost $200 for each person in Mississippi. The indictment alleges the commissioner got his share in increments of several thousand dollars at a time. According to prosecutors, the commissioner told the businessman guy after one contract, quote, I got us $12,000 a month, which they then allegedly divided evenly after accounting for the taxes that the businessman would owe on his part of it. So I guess that part would be legal because he'd pay the taxes on his half. Prosecutors said the commissioner shook that businessman down for a condo on the Mississippi coast. They say the commissioner then shook him down again for a larger, more expensive condo a couple of towns over. 
mostly, though, as you read through these 49 felony counts, you get the sense that the commissioner seems to have preferred cash, so much cash that he couldn't figure out how to keep anybody from noticing that he was awash in bills. Look at this. This is from count one of the indictment, and we mapped it out as best we could. Look, quote, on July 30th, 2009, the commissioner deposited $9,000 cash at the Regions Bank, uh, Regions Branch Bank in Flowood, Mississippi at 2.16 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, he deposited $9,000 cash at the Bank Plus in Flowood. Twenty-two minutes after that, he deposited $9,000 cash at the Regions Bank in Jackson. And then he deposited, quote, $9,000 cash at the Mississippi Public Employees Credit Union in Jackson. Honey, I'll be back in an hour. I have to go stash $36,000 in cash at four different banks. Commissioner Epps resigned uh, on Wednesday from his job as the state prisons commissioner and as the president of the trade group that gave himself the perfect score. He and the businessman guy pleaded not guilty yesterday. The commissioner now faces 368 years in prison. And I believe that would be federal prison, not Mississippi cesspool prison. The governor of Mississippi today announced a full review of prison contracts in the state now that nearly a billion taxpayer dollars are alleged to be tangled up in this scheme with the bribes and the kickbacks. And there's a lot of questions to answer about this 49-count indictment, which includes not just the commissioner who allegedly took all the bribes and the kickbacks, but this businessman who's a former judge and a former legislator who's charged with paying him all the bribes and the kickbacks in order to get the business from the prison system. Well, there you have it. That was Rachel Maddow discussing Chris Epps, who was the uh, longest-serving commissioner for the state of Mississippi's prison systems, who had uh, helped to divert almost a billion dollars in Mississippi uh, resources to private prisons for kickbacks. No big contracts and such. And, you know, these prisons, one of, the, one of the things that first of all popped up to me is strange, and I talked to Yusuf about this, is that the prison, the Department of Corrections of Mississippi, as of 2017, had like a $370 million Department of Corrections budget. Where did a billion dollars come from? How did you get a billion dollars out of only less than $400 million for your annual budget? So that struck me as unusual, first of all, right off the bat. Maybe there's an uh, explanation for it, but it is a mystery at this moment. Uh, also, this commissioner, um, one of the things that was highly dependent upon him was keeping the prisons full in Mississippi. And as Rachel Maddow expressed, uh, judges have come to these prisons, particularly the Walnut Grove Youth Detention Facility, where he saw that they were literally cesspools of unconstitutional violations, where teenagers were being raped and murdered and uh, abused. And this was a company, uh, a prison run by the Geo Group, who is also a global corporation who we discussed last week. Uh, the Geo Group ran the Walnut Correctional Facility. They also work very closely with Mississippi Prisons Department of Correction. There's a lot of things that we have found uh, in our investigation on top of the investigation Jerry Mitchell did, and we'll try to share as much of it with you as we can tonight. But in any case, keep in mind, we're only scratching the surface. You, sir? Yeah, that's the important thing you hit on right there. We're only scratching the surface. I mean, as you and I have discussed, I mean, just to cover Mississippi alone, we would need several episodes. Also, when dealing with uh, this uh, Chris Epps, 
do you know that also that there was the doctor, uh, Carl Reddix, who was part of the health insurance, who was one of the many contractors that they use for providing health services in the prison system. He also went to prison for paying bribes to Carl Epps. And for those who may not know, I mean, we have to also throw this in there. You know, these are two black men that we're talking about that are doing well, this. No. No, there was one white guy and one black guy. The 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 white man, McCrory, was the former judge slash former legislator who is now a uh, prison private prison lobbyist and controls, I guess, much stake in their prison industry. Right. Well, I, I was speaking of uh, Christopher Epps and Carl Reddix. Oh, Carl Reddix, yes, the doctor. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because he actually got uh. I believe it was six years that he got for paying bribes to uh, Carl Reddick. I guess he was saying, you know, I went in on this. How much do I have to pay you? How much do I have to kick back to you to get in on this? So when we look at uh, Reddick's Epps, well, I'm getting a little ahead of the I'm getting a little ahead of the curve. Let me uh, pass it back to you, Max, because I was getting ready to get into right. something. That we- that's how next. That I'll get some commentary from Harmony. Harmony, what are your thoughts at this point uh, so far? Um, excuse me. This is actually the first time I'm hearing about it. Uh, this past in um, Mississippi was just bad, and I definitely did not know about the um, the I, what what was it? Chris at I can't. Think of his title right now. His title, uh, <laughs> but it escapes me. But commissioner of corrections. Commissioner of corrections. I definitely did not know about that. Um, um, but it's wow. You would think like reporters like Rachel Maddow, like since she's reporting on issues, she would dig deeper and uh, actually spread the message of you know slavery still being alive. But it's like they only go so far and then they fail backwards. But I definitely want to look into this more and learn more about what's going on in Mississippi and what we can do to, you know, help push things, help uh, push reform there, um, uh, most definitely. But, yeah, I definitely have to just look into this more. But, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Max. And uh, we, we get to that next part. Uh, yes. I was going to say, Anna just hit it. She just said something that probably resonates with a lot of people when she says, I didn't know this was going on because a lot of times people don't really understand how much money is changing hands between this. That's when you can really start seeing how it relates to slavery, how it is slavery, once you watch the money. Yep, and I wanted to mention another thing, too. Also, like I, when she said that um, <laughs> not only he was he the commissioner, but um, he basically <laughs> – at 100%. <laughs> it just remind me of, like, the police and how they investigate themselves, especially after a police-involved shooting. So it's all connected, um, and it all correlates with each other. It's just wild how, like, these goes down the rabbit hole. Like, it's, like, never-ending. But, um, yeah, I definitely advise people to look more into that um, and, and just do your research and what we're saying, but do your own research. I'd like to make a, a comment, and then I want to go into our first music track 
So we'll, we'll need a little break after this and listen to some music. But before that, I just want to point out that what we found out is the size and scope of what is called Mississippi Hustle, Mississippi Hustle, uh, investigation by multi-state organizations. Uh, we found that it reaches out to Louisiana. There's connections to Louisiana. There's connections to Alabama. There's even connections to South Carolina. South Carolina has been sending its prisoners, dozens of them, to Mississippi prisons, where one of them just recently died. And that's just here in the nation because, you know, the companies that are involved in this corruption scandal are international companies. I want to read out loud the names of the people who Mississippi Attorney General Hood is seeking damages and punitive damages against. And that is former Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Chris Epps, Cecil McCrory, Robert Simmons, Herb Benjamin, Sam Wagoneer, Mark Langoria, Teresa Malone, Carl Reddix, Michael Reddix, Andrew Jenkins, Management and Training Corporation, which is an international corporation, the Geo Group, which is behind it all, Cornell Companies Incorporated, Wexford Health Sources Incorporated, the Bantry Group Corporation, Admin Pros LLC, CGL Facility Management LLC, Mississippi Correctional Management Incorporated, Brandon Medical Corporation, Drug Testing Corporation, Global Tell Link Corporation, y'all probably heard of that too before, Health Assurance LLC, Keefe Commissary Network, that's another mm-hmm. national billion-dollar freaking company, Sentinel Offenders, L- uh, Offender Services, LLC, and AJA Management and Technical Services, Incorporated. Those are just the names listed in the Mississippi indictment. They're seeking to get back uh, all the money that was lost, which is up to a billion. It seems like they are about to settle on about $30 million, which points out one more thing that we I found, and then I'm going to go into the music track. When it comes to this geo group, they've done this before. They did it with the kids for cash scandal. They come in, they bribe everybody in sight, they commit human rights violations, they enslave people and use people as human collateral. They make a billion dollars, then they get fined twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars and continue work as usual. That's what we see almost all the time. So, with that being said, let's go into Phil Ox. Here's to the state of Mississippi. Here's to the state of Mississippi. For underneath her borders, the devil draws no line. If you drag her muddy rivers, nameless bodies you will find. Oh, the fat trees of the forest have hit a thousand crimes. The calendar's line when it reads the present time. Oh, here's to the land you've torn out the heart of. Mississippi, find yourself another country to be part of. And here's to the people of Mississippi Who say the folks up north They just don't understand 
And they tremble in the shadows at the thunder of the clan. Oh, the sweating of their souls can't wash the blood from off their hands. For they smile and shrug their shoulders at the murder of a man. Oh, here's to the land to turn out the heart of Mississippi. Find yourself another country to be part of. the schools of Mississippi, where they're teaching all the children that they don't have to care, all the rudiments of hatred are present everywhere, and every single classroom is a factory of despair, and there's nobody learning such a foreign word as fair, oh, here's to the land. Turn out the heart of Mississippi, find yourself another country to be part of. And here's to the cops of Mississippi. They're chewing their tobacco as they lock the prison door. And their bellies bounce inside them when they knock you to the floor. No, they don't like taking prisoners in their private little wars. And behind their broken badges, there are murderers and more. Oh, here's to the land, you've torn out the heart of. Mississippi, find yourself another country to be part of. To the judges of Mississippi Who wear the robe of honor As they crawl into the court And they're guarding all the bastions Of their phony legal fort Who justice is a stranger When the prisoners report When the black man stands accused The trial is always short Oh, here's to the land Torn out the heart of Mississippi, find yourself another country to be part of. And here's to the government of Mississippi. In the swamp of their bureaucracy, they're always bogging down. And criminals are posing as the mayors of the town. And they hope that no one sees the sights and no one hears the sound. And the speeches of the governor are the ravings of a clown. Whoa, here's to the land, you've torn out the heart of. Mississippi, find yourself another country to be part of. And here's to the laws of Mississippi. Congressmen will gather in a circus of delay While the Constitution's drowning in an ocean of decay Unwed mothers should be sterilized, I've even heard them say Yes, corruption can be classic in the Mississippi way Oh, here's to the land Find yourself another country to be part of. 
another country to be part of. And here's to the churches of Mississippi, where the cross once made of silver now is caked with rust, and the Sunday morning sermons pander to their lust. Oh, the fallen face of Jesus is choking in the dust. And heaven only knows in which God they can trust. Whoa, here's to the land. You've torn out the heart of Mississippi. Find yourself another country to be part of. That was Phil Ox. Here's to the state of Mississippi. Man, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was fitting. No doubt. It, uh, it changed the mood a little bit there, but it's time to get back into it, man. And uh, we're running a little late, so let's try to keep it, if we can. Um, one of the things that I did want to point out is how this is spread to other states. So one of the stories that I've got in front of me is about Louisiana, where the Louisiana businessman is spared in the Mississippi prison corruption, and he uh, was awaiting sentencing. That's LeBlanc Senior 71 built a private prison firm called LCS Corrections with his late brother Patrick, which he sold, along with eight LCS Corrections-owned lockups to the publicly traded prison operator Geo Group Incorporated. In 2015, for $307 million, Geo Group financial documents show that $298 million of the sale went to cover debts. So apparently he was heavily in debt. LeBlanc then went on to build a pair of companies, American Telephone Systems and Brothers Commissary, that contracts with sheriffs and private prison companies to operate prisoner phones and run shops that sell snacks, toiletries, and other items to prisoners. These companies had contracts with at least 14 Louisiana sheriffs and at least one privately run prison in Louisiana when federal prosecutors announced charges against LeBlanc, his son, and associates last year. LeBlanc's architecture firm, MWL Architects, designed a number of jails in Louisiana and at least five in Mississippi. It's unclear if the LeBlancs have maintained control of the companies since their guilty pleas. Michael LeBlanc Jr. is still listed as the registered owner or registered agent for Brothers Commissary Services, LLC, and business fillings uh, filings with the Louisiana Secretary of State's office. And Michael LeBlanc Sr. filed paperwork to change the name of MWL Architects to MWL Developers Incorporated the day after pleading guilty in federal court. So that kind of points to what they're trying to do here. It, same thing the GEO group does is do all this dirt, pay a little bit of money, maybe change the name like uh, CoreCivic from CCA. Right. And then continue business as usual where the atrocities continue. Uh, Hannah, I'm going to start with you first. Um, as far as the song goes, I, I think that was an awesome song. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as what you were saying with the continuous uh, business as usual, I feel like that that's, you know, something that's been going on for years. Um and it just feeds back into the prison for profit system, and it's just a continuous cycle. Um, 
talking to some clients who have actually um, been to prison and had to do prison labor, slavery as we know it. And uh, when I educate them on the 13th Amendment, they're like, wow, really? They they don't know. So they'll look it up. Um, so that's just me, me talking about, like, personal stuff. But um, <laughs> as far as, like, the money just continues to being funneled, um, it is definitely another rabbit hole that it seems never-ending, um, but definitely needs to continue to be exposed. Yusuf? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. You know, they run a shell game to where they keep changing names and changing companies, moving the money around. Every now and then they get hit with a little inconvenience of a, you know, $50 million fine. You know, someone may get fired or removed from one position and sent off to another company and get hired there. So they just keep recycling everything and, the GEO group is really turning into a monster because I'm looking back at many of the companies that named that the attorney general is after. The GEO group owns many of them in some fashion. Like when you look at Management and Training Corporation, I'm, I'm sorry, not Management and Training Corporation. They're another small that I anticipate GEO group is going to be purchasing. Cornell companies purchased by GEO Group back in 2000. Siren behind somebody. All right. Yeah, uh, GEO Group purchased uh, Cornell companies for $685 million back in 2010, and Business Wire said that that automatically created a $1.5 billion profit share just by them purchasing that Hmm. company because – uh, Cornell comp- companies, they came in with a 20-year history with the Barrel of Prisons in their security division and then a 35-year history with the community supervision. And so when they start pulling in, and this is how they're, they're doing it, they diversify themselves, they use a business term, that they're not just focusing on companies that just handle one aspect. They're coming from all angles. You have Keefe dealing with commissary, Globatel dealing with the communications. You have the healthcare providers like Health Assurance. You have the facility management companies like CGL. So they cover all aspects of it to make sure the money stays in-house. That's another reason they're able to hide because everyone that's working, no matter what it is, whether you're the garbage contractor or you're providing the food services through Aramark or many other companies, Everything stays in-house, so they're able to hide. And like I said, every now and then they get hit with a small little fee somewhere because when you're making several billion dollars, $50 million fine is nothing. That's like a traffic ticket. So they just keep on rolling with that, Max. Yeah, that's the hustle that they seem to be using. Uh, It's better to seek forgiveness than ask permission. Just go in, violate every right you can imagine, make a billion dollars, pay back 30, 40, 50 million. In the case of kids for cash, I believe Merkel was forced to pay back 80 million, but they made a billion dollars. <laughs> and then nobody shuts the business down. They go and repeat and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. I want to describe to the people, uh, I want to describe to the people what Operation Mississippi Hustle is. And then I want to hear the voices of the last two governors 
of Mississippi back-to-back a week apart. Uh, the first one uh, was there at Parchman after the right. circumstances were, which led to 25 deaths in the Mississippi prison systems. And then the second one is the incoming uh, governor who gave a speech about what it is he was planning to do. I want to break down what it is they said, too. But let's go with Operation Mississippi Hustle. It's an ongoing federal investigation initiated in 2014 or earlier by the United States Attorney and prosecuted in the United States Court for the Southern District of Mississippi. It has examined the relationship between officials of the Mississippi Department of Corrections and various for-profit prison contractors and subcontractors who have provided services to the five prisons of the state. One has since been closed since September 2016. The FBI revealed a long history of corruption and bribery beginning as early as 1997. The investigation resulted in indictments on November 6, 2014 against Christopher Epps, long-serving commissioner of the Department of Corrections. Epps will resign from the state office and as president of the American Correctional Association just a day prior to his indictment, he had received bribes and kickbacks worth at least $1.5 million based on contracts of nearly $900 million with private prison operators and related service providers. By 2018, October, the U.S. Attorney for Southern Mississippi had won indictments against 16 other officials consultants, contractors, and businessmen, including two former state legislators. And with more expected, 11 have pleaded guilty. One committed suicide, and the identity of another has yet to be made made public. The ex-mayor of Walnut Grove, William Grady Sims, finished his sentence. Six other defendants were convicted and are in federal custody. Four Louisiana defendants await trial. Jim Hood, the Mississippi Attorney General, announced in February of 2017 that he was filing civil suits against 15 prison contractors and several individuals for damages and punitive damages related to the corruption cases. But he said that state law requires that they must also forfeit and return the entire amount of the contracts paid by the state. My God, there's a lot of money going on around here, man. Right. We're talking billions in states where they don't have but a $370 million uh, Department of Correction budget. But somehow they found nearly a billion. Let's start with Governor Phil Bryant, and this was on January 6th of 2020. Uh, Someone asked earlier who's responsible for what's happening at Parchment. The inmates. The inmates are the ones that take each other's lives. The inmates are the ones that fashion weapons uh, out of metal. The inmates are the ones that, uh, that do the damage to the, the, the very uh, rooms that they are living in there. So uh, I would say you look to the inmates. Uh, there is no uh, one that's perpetrating them to commit crimes with inside those uh, walls of the penitentiary. Uh, we are going to stop it. We have it under control as best we can. Prisons are difficult to manage. Uh, under the best of circumstances. So we need more personnel. Obviously, it would be better if we had more people working in the prisons. At $25,000 a year to work in parchment, it's not always easy to find the people that want to dedicate themselves to a career in corrections. We need to work on that. We need to fix that. Uh, and so we'll move forward with a plan of how that we uh, can not only maintain currently 
the standards that we expect at Parchman, uh, custody and control of the inmates, uh, but also what does the future look like? What does the next four years look like uh, for the Department of Corrections and improvements must be made? Governor, hindsight is 2020. You, you tweeted, uh, I think it was yesterday, that there needs to be investments made into the corrections system. Do you no, wish 2020, that... I've been saying that for the past four years. Um, I, you can look back at when we made presentations to the Budget Committee and saying you've got to invest in the prisons. We passed criminal justice reform so we could try to move some of those nonviolent offenders out to make more room for the really violent offenders that need to be there. But this is a whole new level. When you look at the capital city, and we've had some 78 murders in 2019, uh, and so we had five tragic losses of life uh, within the Department of Corrections. But this capital city has almost 80 people that have been murdered. Gangs are a real threat. Not only do we need more support within the Department of Corrections, but law enforcement needs all our support to be able to stop uh, the gang activity that's going on each and every day on the Capitol streets and in our prisons. You blame in the city of Jackson, the streets. You also say they're, they're not being funded. I'm not blaming. I'm stating a fact. The fact is there's been 79 murders in the state of Mississippi and Jack in the state of Mississippi's capital city in Jackson in 2018. That's a, that's a fact. Much Under, of it is, dr uh, is drug-related and gang-related. Understanding that once they get to parchment, it's then the state's responsibility to take care of them. Have you been taking care of them despite, you say, gang affiliations, things of that nature? You know, you but can take care of people that want to comply to the rules. Uh, when you fashion weapons to try to intimidate and kill and murder uh, other inmates, uh, it is difficult for us uh, to always manage that at 100%. Is MDOC in peril? Is there a problem within our prison system now that needs to be addressed? There, there's always been a problem within the prison system. When you're trying to manage, Parchman has 3,500 inmates. When you're trying to manage 35 inmates, many of them are violent inmates. Uh, that's a problem. I, I've, I've been in correctional facilities. I've worked in jails. It is not easy under the best of circumstances. There's not a, a state in America that won't tell you that they need more correctional officers, that they need more prisons. Um, the escalating uh, crime problem continues, and we're managing it, I think, as well as we can under the current circumstances. Should Mississippi comply with a federal investigation if one is deemed to be appropriate? Yeah, uh, we're conducting an investigation just now. If somebody wants to come in and provide assistance to that, I would, I would certainly welcome it. I would also encourage them to begin the investigation on the streets of the capital city and, and throughout the state of Mississippi to try to apprehend more of these criminals that are involved in gangs and are starting at even an earlier age. Can you shed light in on the gangs that we're finding? MDOC has not provided a lot of information about specifics. You know, I really can't. Uh, uh, there's an investigation going on, and whenever that occurs, we are trying to be um, as open as we can be without giving away information that the other side might be able to use. And that's the other thing. There's some irresponsible reporting going on, uh, picking up uh, some videos that inmates are putting out. Uh, and saying this is factual, and, um, and w what you're doing is when you report that, encouraging other inmates. They want to be on social media. They want you to show their videos, and that's going to encourage them to do it more and more and encourage them to be even more violent. They get gratification by the fact that you're paying such great attention to them. You're making them stars, and they're convicts. That was Governor Phil Bryant this January 6th speaking about the tragedies that have been occurring throughout the Mississippi prisons, not only during this investigation of Operation Mississippi Hustle, 
but also because of the suicides and murders that at, at one point reached 25 people within three months. Uh, let's keep it brief on this one, uh, Yusuf. You know, as I'm listening to him speak, the only thing I can think of is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Are you familiar with that one? <laughs> yes, but explain. You know, this is where, you know, it comes from a joke where it talks about, you know, a guy shoots his shotgun at the side of a barn, and then he puts the target over where the largest cluster is to make it seem like he was on point. So this is what this guy is doing. He's taking... You know, he has all the data, but he's only focusing on a small subset of the data to where, oh, well, this is the problem here, when it's a whole plethora of problems. What he's mentioning as far as what's going on in the jail is just a small subset of the problems. Indeed. Uh, Harmony? Honestly, as he was speaking, (laughs) All I could think of is that bastard sounds like a slave master. That's exactly. I know, right? That's all I could. That's exactly what he sounded like, and I don't even know how to make that sound prettier than than what I how I said it. But he sounds just like a a slave master, and it's really it's really sick. And just That's how like profound. Say it again. <laughs> it's very profound. Yeah, that he sounds just like the slave master he is. And uh, it it makes me think of, like, uh, just how the mayor and, like, how police officers, you know, how they talk about, like, poor communities um, and say, like, well, all they do is kill each other in that neighborhood. But if people people have proper resources, um, they wouldn't kill each other. If they had jobs, if they had food, if they had shelter, if they had their basic needs met, they, there would be less crime. And that goes inside and outside of the prison population. So it just made me um, feel like even outside of the prison system, we all live in a big prison in some way, especially if you're poor and you're black. You live in prison. Talking, the more he just kept talking, I'm like, he sounds just like a, a slave master. And there's no well, other way to put it. He nice. did use a, a, a number of logical fallacies. It's also used uh, incorrect data. And at some point, I think he was just outright lying. For instance, he was talking about the escalating uh, crime and violence that's going on in the capital city. And he used the capital city as an example in comparison to what's happening in Parchment. Well, first of all, in the capital city, there's 170,000 people. So if you uh, do the math, it comes out to uh, one in 2014 uh, being killed in the capital city. But if you do the math in the same way for Parchman, where you've got uh, five, just say five at that point that he talked about, it ended up being 25. Well, let's just go with the five. That's one in 700. There's only 3,500 people in that place. So that was a false analogy to begin with. And then he was right. talking about that, like I said, the rising crime rate. So I did a little research and found out that the state of Mississippi's crime rate has been dropping steadily now for the past five years. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's down, violent crimes are down 13%, or no, property crimes are down 13%, and violent crimes are down 8%. So I don't know what he was talking about, this ongoing war that is occurring, worse than anything that's ever happened before. And then also, he at one point, he was he did sound like a slave master, blaming the slaves. Like, if you slaves right. didn't stop tearing up your cells that we got you in and acted like you were happy and followed every rule we said, you wouldn't have any problems. 
what he didn't mention was that he was talking from parchment prisons there where they have at least two areas that were condemned. No lights, no uh, air, no heat, uh, rats throughout the place, uh, mold all over the place, the walls and floors all torn up. They were putting the prisoners in that. Now, I don't know about you, but only uh, I would never submit myself to that. I'd rather die for us to be in that condition because that, that's, that's so subhuman, and everybody in it probably feels the same way. And he was claiming about all these violent prisoners, but when you look at the records of Mississippi State's prisons, you find that there are 10 times more nonviolent offenders in their prisons than there are violent offenders. Mm-hmm. I think the number was 225 per 100,000 for violent offenders, and then 2,700 and some odd for nonviolent offenders. So you only had a few that were like that. Right. So, you know, I just want to counter some of the BS that he was throwing out there. He's creating this false narrative of such an emergency when it's not the people on the outside who are being uh, subject to cruel and unusual, unusual punishment. It's the people inside. And let me also part out, point out that Parchment Prison was once a plantation, just like Angola. The progression right. of this is so clear. Absolutely. All right. So, if, if you guys want to add any final comments to that, I want to go into the next governor. Yeah, it it just makes me it's going to be crazy what we're going to hear from Tate Reeves. If that's what uh, what was this last guy's name? I, I forgot his name already. Um, the last one was Phil Bryant. And Bryant. You're right. Tate Reeves is, is next. Uh, Hunter, anything to add to that before I go to Tate Reeves? I have nothing to add. Um, I'm ready to okay. hear the next guy. This is Governor Tate Reeves from just a short while after the last speech you heard from Bryant. This was on January 29th, 2020. I've been to Parchment. I saw it for myself just a few days ago. The problems were infuriating. There is no excuse. We can do better. We will right the wrongs of the past, and we will do everything in our power to protect the dignity of every. Mississippi life. All Mississippians must be able to trust that the people in charge of the system are acting with competence to keep them safe. We must be able to trust that the corrections officers operating these prisons have the tools that they need to do their jobs and that they are compensated fairly. We must be able to trust that this system shows a baseline level of respect to those who find themselves within it. We must administer justice fairly, respecting the dignity of all within our prison walls. We have brought in an honorable, able, experienced leader with a background in corrections and law enforcement, Tommy Taylor, to serve as a steady hand in the interim. He has already made several changes that we hope will help us begin to do better. There's a great deal more that must be done but we are just now starting to move in the right direction. We have asked a trusted, diverse group of experts to conduct a nationwide search to provide me with a recommendation for a permanent solution to our leadership crisis. We have made one major decision that I would like to announce today. I have instructed the Mississippi Department of Corrections to begin the necessary work to start 
closing Parchman's most notorious unit, Unit 29. There are many logistical questions that will need to be answered. We're working through that right now. But I have seen enough. We have to turn the page. This is the first step, and I have asked the department to begin the preparations to make it happen safely, justly, and quickly. All right, there you have it. That was Tate Reeves, Governor Tate Reeves, uh, just a few weeks later, uh, talking about the same circumstances. Uh, I'll start with uh, Harmony this time. Harmony? Well, I, he mentioned um, that they brought in a guy, I forget his name already, um, but he didn't, and they were expecting, yeah. yes, they're expecting him to use a steady hand. But he didn't go into detail what that what that means to him. What is a steady hand to you? And they keep mentioning uh, getting more correction officers and paying them well. But they don't mention about supplying the inmates with the resources that they need to be successful in prison and to be released. Um, and uh, the whole nationwide search thing reminded me of uh, when our, our mayor here in Columbus, Ohio, when he did a whole so-called search for the new chief of police, <laughs> um, only to choose a candidate that was from Columbus, Ohio. Um, they had a good prospect who came from, uh, he worked in, he worked in, I believe, the last place was Seattle, Washington. And, you know, he seemed like a good prospect, but they still chose um, the candidate that was basically from here and was working as interim chief of police. Um, so I just feel like that's all just, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's just language to make people feel like, you know, the the government is listening and, and cares. Um, he didn't really get into details of what changes, what, what does a steady hand mean? What is, he didn't get into <laughs> these details. So it's like you just throwing out pretty words, and those who aren't listening are going to be like, oh, he's good, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to vote him in again, like, but that's what they all do, politics. Right, right. Uh, Yusuf? Yeah, Hannah just hit it right there. Or oh, Harmony, I'm sorry. You got to forgive You're me. You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. So, you know, when looking at this guy, you know, this is the new guy. So he has to come in saying all this pretty stuff. But we know it always boils down to, you know my saying, Max, more walls, more bars, and more guards. It always comes to that. Also, that uh, he's already uh, put into cutting $250 million out of the corrections budget. He's, uh, you know, he did mention that he's closing the uh, closing parchment, but he's not mentioning well, what's going to happen with them. No, no new prisons are being built. At least they're not mentioning that they're being built. So what are they going to do, cram the 3500 into the other overcrowded prisons? You know, so this is things that we're going to have to look at going down the road. We're going to have to revisit this in a few months. He's only been in since January, so everything is still rosy. Maybe they haven't put him in the back room yet and roughed him up yet. Or he's just one of those, what is What is this guy? Is he, is he one of the uh, liberal slave masters? Because they they sound really good and they talk this type of language, but many of them are worse than those who are just outright and blatantly racist and and uh carry these traits. 
All right. Uh, no doubt, man. We're all of like mind in here. Uh, I, could, I think I could add a couple more things. Uh, one, I'm in agreement with both of you. First of all, uh, the latter governor sounded nothing like nothing but lip service. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when somebody giving you lip service, they're just trying to tell you what you want to hear to shut you up and keep you moving on. And they can look like they're, they were concerned and actually did something, you know? We'll put all options on the table. We're, you know, we've been in discussions about these things. Now I talk to my people to handle this. You know, it's just this is crap. Um, also, I noticed that there was something they had in common, which you both pointed out, is that in the midst of a federal corruption scandal where a billion dollars has been stolen through these no-bid contracts and all of this bribery and scandal stuff, during the midst of all of that, they're not saying free anybody. They're saying give us more money. That was good right. the last time. We need another billion, <laughs> another billion. You know, in, in the meantime, the people are living in uh, utter abject horror in these prisons that were condemned, that were condemned. So they're facing federal investigations, and in the midst of that, they're asking for money. And if you remember with the last week, we talked about Alabama, we found that sheriff who was doing the same thing. He, In the midst of his corruption, where he's greedily getting money for, for the food project and you know buying uh, property with it, uh, he was saying, we got to put all these people in prison, uh, even the drug addicts, because you can't fix that. They need to be in prison, so we got to put them in prison. you got to start questioning the motives behind this. Why do you keep needing so much more money and nothing is happening with it? <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I'm at, honey. You know what I'd like to do is go ahead and open up our phone lines. Uh, if anybody wants to comment, please keep it brief. If you can, the call-in number is 515-605-9814. That's 515-605-9814. Uh, if you're already online and you want to comment, just press the number one. It will put your hand up so I know that you want, uh, you have something to say. In the meantime, we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, you, sir? Yeah, man, you just you just touched on, you know, just, well, all three of us. I mean, it covers the whole gist of the thing. You know, there's all this talk of we want to make changes, we want to make changes. There's no plan for changes except give us more money so we can hire more guards. So, in other words, they need more overseers to do more whippings, to do more lynchings. But there's nothing about let's let's stop providing them with, you know, spoiled food. I've read reports on that where food is spoiled, where they're not getting hot water, where the air conditioning is on in the winter and the heat is on in the summer, or nothing is on in the summer. There's no talk of that. There's no talk of better laundry practices where, you know, they could have laundry that needs to be done, but, you know, it doesn't get done for weeks. And many of the other services having for the inmates having to pay outrageous co-pays for their medical services, for them to getting substandard uh, me- uh, medical, medical care. You know, many of these things, the, the, uh, put placing in solitary confinement for some of the smallest infractions. Not to mention, and then we also have to, you know, mention the uh, 
the activities that also go on among the prisoners. Where I've read the one article where the guy said guys are walking around with, you know, steel that they've taken out of the walls, walking around with samurai swords and everything. Because, of course, when things get out of hand, they're going to get really out of hand. And, of course, people are going to take it out on each other because they're the only ones they have access to. So, you know, that's... As I pointed out earlier, the vast majority of the people are not violent people. Uh, They're in with violent people. And if you're in with violent people, you better learn how to defend yourself quickly. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was something else that I wanted to mention, Max. That one unit where they had, it was mainly youthful offenders. You know, guys, they usually 18 to, you know, their early 20s. Many of them in there for petty crimes, doing, you know, short bids, you know, less than five years. But then all of a sudden they're put in the area where guys are doing life. And one thing with guys doing life, they're less tolerant of certain things. They also see people that have lower sentences as being weaker. And then you 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 cap all that off with the conditions of what's going on, and it becomes, you know, survival of the fittest. Who's going to survive? You know, if there's if there's very little to survive off of, then yeah, I want my share. And yeah, you have to start getting violent. Violence meets violence, or you know you're gonna get you're gonna get swept under the rug. You're gonna get taken out. So it's it's a really bad situation. But again, you don't hear this talk from the governor. What you hear from the governor is talking about more walls, more bars, and more guards. Amen, hey, man. We. If you remember, the last governor before those two had to resign over scandals where he was uh, having an affair with his, I think it was one of his lead organizers. <laughs> you know, so I, it, it's just nothing but corruption on top of corruption on top of corruption. And according to the story from Christopher Epps, he has turned state evidence. So he's been ratting out all of these people up to and including the government. So this is why the governors. So this is why this investigation has been ongoing uh, still. So, Harmony? Um, I think Yusuf said it all. (laughs) I don't really have anything to add. Um, But it's just continuous corruption. um, And they're all in it together. To these governors, uh, it sounds like, you know, I'm listening to governors and and mayors in Ohio. (laughs) Like, it's it's all the same continuous pattern nationwide, uh, and their main goal is to keep people in prison and make profit off of them. Because uh, as we know, which is why we have the show, slavery did, has not been abolished, and we see it within our prison system, and uh, it definitely needs to be ratified. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I when it comes to, like, the... Um, the prison population, most people are are in jail and prison is because they have low-level crimes or if they're in jail, it's because they can't afford battle, so they're just sitting. They're just sitting ducks, and the state is making uh, money off of them. But his only solution, like you said, was to have, uh, you know, more correction officers um, who are probably getting paid off of prison 
labor. And it, it's just a disgusting cycle that needs to end. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Y'all have hit the nail on the head most times. Thanks. Um, we're coming up on to the last few minutes of the program before we go into our final comments and in our final segment. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out, first of all, to all the people who have tuned in and listened and supported us along the way here. Thank you so much. I also want to give a, a big shout-out to the people and the organizations that make it possible for us to put this broadcast on every week, uh, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, Shamer Urge, uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, and the I Am We Ubuntu Human Rights Organization. So because of them, we're able to do this. Uh, and we have the support of the organized prison organizers behind bars, as well as the organizers out. Uh, we don't expect you, like we can't tell you all of it in one little show like we're doing right now, but we can give you the information so you can break it down yourself. These are the type of programs where you should listen to them more than once so you can uh, think about or investigate the things that we couldn't do in the little time that we have. Um, so with that being said, uh, I would I had planned to play one more clip of the before and after uh, news reports on Christopher Epps and what happened with him, but I highly suggest that you simply follow us at Abolition Today on Facebook and also on YouTube. So we have everything that we've been talking about right there for you to examine as well. Maybe you're like us and you want to know more. So we make that information available to you. And uh, thanks to Jeanette Smith for making that happen for us while we're on the program. She's continuously putting out the links. So they're there. With that, I'm going to pass the mic over to uh, Brother Yusuf. You know, uh, are we doing our closing statements or this is just uh, general stuff? Um, we we have scheduled to do our closing statements in exactly three minutes, so that's what we got. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to take the time out, as I do every week, to acknowledge those behind the wall. I'm in community, as all of us, we're in communication with many that are behind the walls that are actually experiencing what we're talking about. So I just want to acknowledge them to let them know that we are thinking about them and that they're you know, that we're here to speak for them because most of the movement started because of them. So just wanted to reach out to them, and there's a few that I'm in communication with on Twitter that I haven't heard from in a while, and I'm hoping to hear something back from them to just make sure that they're okay and, you know, see what the status is regarding uh, the coronavirus and other issues that are going on I know uh, one has been telling me there's a, that there's a second death at uh, Lee Prison, and I also want to hear from a couple of others just to see what's going on and so we can get the word out behind that, Max. All right. Um, uh, Hannah, anything to add to this before we make our closing statements and quotes? This is clo- a closing remark. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, I just want to say thank you for having me a part of this show. Um, I'm excited to, you know, be a part of this programming. Um, also, I, you know, want to share my solidarity with those behind bars, behind uh, the prison and the jails, um, and I'm happy to be able to, you know, be a part of a program that advocates for them. And last but not least, um, 
today is the one-year anniversary of the funeral of um, Amber Evans, um, who was a sister mm-hmm. and a friend and a local community organizer um, in Columbus, Ohio. So I just wanted to uplift her name and end the show without uplifting her name. Um, so it's been pretty sad over here uh, in Columbus. So just ask everybody to keep us in your thoughts. Um, and again, thank you, Max, for letting me be a part of this show. We're really making history. We are indeed, and we've done that together before, all three of us, um, more than a few occasions, apparently. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have certainly done it. All right, well, let's start to close this out here. Uh, you know, um, would you you want to do your quotes first, Yusuf, or you want me to go? Ladies first. All right. Uh, do you have a quote would you like to share with our uh, audience before we call it back? She may not be familiar with our process. <laughs> it's just, it's oh, okay. Fun, right? I'm sorry. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I just like to, you know, one of my favorite songs just happens to be Mississippi Goddamn. So just to quote a short verse of Nina Simone where she says, Alabama's gotten me so upset, Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. And so... As I, in, in closing, as always, you know, I close with Malcolm X. If you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. Peace and blessings be upon you and you, Max, and Harmony, and our listening audience. Amen. Um, I'm Max Parthas. You've been listening to Abolition Today. Uh, this is both Yusuf and I agree. This is our favorite part of the program coming up right now. We get to, after, you know, going through all this discussion, to sit back and listen to this amazing segment coming up, and it's called Bridging the Gap. This is part four of Ozzie Davis Reads Frederick Douglass, where he tells of the day he rode to freedom. And that's going to be followed by Nina Simone. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Uh, once again, you've been listening to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan, Harmony YZ, and Max Parthas. Tune in next Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our live broadcast. Until then, archives are available at abolitiontoday.org. Peace. As I became more difficult to manage as a slave, it was decided to send me back to my old home in Baltimore. It was from this city in the year 1838 that I escaped from slavery. In the early part of that year, I became quite restless. My master had hired me out as a ship corker for which work I was paid wages, which I had to turn over to my master. I could see no reason why I should, at the end of each week, pour the reward of my toil into the purse of my master. When I carried to him my weekly wage, he would, after counting the money, look me in the face with a robber-like fierceness and ask, is that all? He was satisfied with nothing less than the last cent. He would, however, when I made him six dollars, sometimes give me six cents to encourage me. It had the opposite effect. I regarded it as a sort of admission of my right to the whole. The fact that he gave me any part of my wages was proof to my mind that he believed me entitled to the whole of them. I always felt worse for having received anything, for I feared that the giving me a few cents would ease his conscience and make him feel himself to be a pretty honorable sort of robber. My discontent grew upon me. 
I was ever on the lookout for means of escape from slavery. Two thoughts kept me from acting immediately to carry out my resolution. One was the thought of leaving my friends, fellow slaves, and free Negroes whom I knew. This was decidedly the most painful thought with which I had to contend. The love of them was my tender point and shook my decision more than all things else. Besides the pain of separation, there was the dread and apprehension of failure. I felt sure that if I failed in the attempt, my case would be a hopeless one. It would seal my fate as a slave forever. I could not hope to get off with anything less than the severest punishment and being placed beyond the means of escape. It required no very vivid imagination to depict the most frightful scenes through which I should have to pass in case I failed. But the wretchedness of slavery and the blessedness of freedom were perpetually before me. It was life and death with me. Therefore, I remained firm, and according to my resolution, on the third day of September, 1838, I left my chains. For many years after I escaped from slavery, I refrained from revealing to the public the manner of my escape. There were two reasons why I did so. First, to reveal this at any time during the existence of slavery might be used by the master against the slave and prevent the future escape of any who might adopt the same means that I did. The second reason was, if possible, still more binding to silence, for publication of details would certainly have put in peril the persons and property of those who assisted. Murder itself was not more sternly and certainly punished in the state of Maryland than was the aiding and abetting the escape of a slave. My means of escape were provided for me by the very men who were making laws to hold and bind me more securely in slavery. It was the custom in the state of Maryland to require of the free Negro people to have what were called free papers. In these papers, the name, age, color, height, and form of the free men were described, together with any scars or other marks upon his person which could assist in his identification. This device of slaveholding ingenuity, like other devices of wickedness, in some measure defeated itself since more than one man could be found to answer the same general description. Hence, many slaves could escape by personating the owner of one set of papers. And this was often done as follows. A slave, nearly or sufficiently answering the description set forth in the papers, would borrow them till he could by their means escape to a free state, and then, by mail or otherwise, return them to the owner. I was not so fortunate as to sufficiently resemble any of my free acquaintances as to answer the description of their papers. But I had one friend, a sailor, who owned a sailor's protection, which answered somewhat the purpose of free papers, describing his person and certifying to the fact that he was a free American sailor. Unfortunately, this protection called for a man much darker than myself, and close examination of it would have caused my arrest but I decided to use it, for I considered the jostle of the train and the natural haste of the conductor in a train crowded with passengers, and relied upon my skill and address in playing the sailor as described in my protection to do the rest. I had on a red shirt and a tarpaulin hat and black cravat, tied in sailor fashion, carelessly and loosely about my neck. My knowledge of ships and sailors' talk came to my assistance, for I knew a ship from stem to stern and could talk sailor like an old salt. 
I was well on the way from Baltimore before the conductor came into the Negro car to collect fares and examine the papers of his black passengers. This was a critical moment. My whole future depended upon the decision of this conductor. I suppose you have your free papers, the conductor asked me. No, sir. I never carry my free papers to see with me, I replied in a calm and self-possessed manner. But you have something to show that you are a free man, have you not? Yes, sir, I answered. I have a paper with the American Eagle on it that will carry me around the world. With this, I drew from my deep sailor's pocket my seaman's protection as before described. The merest glance at the paper satisfied him, and he took my fare and went about his business. After that, no one disturbed me, and I was soon speeding away to the Quaker city of Philadelphia. On reaching Philadelphia in the afternoon, I inquired of a colored man how I could get to New York. He directed me to the depot, and thither I went, taking the train that night. I reached New York the next morning, having completed the journey from slavery to freedom in less than 24 hours. On the fourth day of September, 1838, after an anxious and most perilous but safe journey, I found myself in the big city of New York, a free man. I, I felt a joyous excitement which words can but tamely describe. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round world here. I wish I could share all the love that's in my Like I'm long 